Father, thank you so much that you have raised your people from the dead. Because, Lord Jesus, you are the one who is the first fruits. You are the one, the promise of more to come. And, Lord, when we say you have raised us, Lord, we are so sure that we are going to be raised to the resurrection of the righteous. That we can say that on this side, that we have been raised. Lord, you told us in your word that we are already right now seated with you in heavenly places. Thank you, Lord, for the spiritual realities of your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. I pray now, Lord, by your spirit, you'll help us understand this most precious, most powerful passage of scripture. May you use it to change our lives, and we'll give you thanks and praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, about 15 years ago, there was a polling firm, uh, the Scripps Survey Research Center, asked churchgoers, regular churchgoers, this question. Do you believe that after you die, that your physical body will be raised someday? The answer was yes, with about half of them. Interesting, about half, regular churchgoers. But if this question were to, ask, to be asked today, I think it would be far worse as far as that goes, far less of a percentage that would say yes. Because the trust in the Scripture now is far less than what it was even 10 years ago. In a newly released study, less than half people, churchgoers, believe that the Scripture is 100% accurate in all that it teaches and all that it touches. Regular churchgoers. Don't believe this. Half don't believe this book. It's amazing. No, it's appalling, isn't it? It really is. So ergo, those who believe what the Bible teaches about the doctrine of the resurrection are in the minority. And I trust that all of us here at Grace United and those who have tuned in through Facebook Live are indeed minority believers. (laughs) And that what we believe about the Bible, if this is God's word from cover to cover. 100%. All that it teaches, all that it touches. We need to believe it. We need to stake our lives on it because it's God's revelation to us. Well, today we're finishing up, finishing up 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's taken us three weeks to do it. And this portion of Scripture is the largest body of information, largest teaching in the New Testament about the resurrection about what it means. So far, we have seen that the bodily resurrection of Christ is a gospel issue. This is a cardinal teaching that we must hold to, that in order to be a Christian, a person must believe that Christ rose again bodily from the grave, not merely spiritually. We've also seen that Christ's resurrection means that the sins of God's people are forgiven. Remember how Paul said in verse 17 that if Christ has not been raised bodily, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It's a pretty big deal, the bodily resurrection of Christ. Third, the resurrection means that perfect justice will ultimately be done. Jesus told us in John chapter 5, verses 25 to 29, these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, 
So he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. And by the way, the one on the great white throne in Revelation 20, that's going to be Jesus. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See, there's going to come a day when all will be resurrected from their graves and they will stand before the king and judge of the world and everybody will give an account of themselves to the resurrected, ascended Lord. Perfect justice will be administered to every person. And no wonder Paul says in relation to this day, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men in 2 Corinthians 5.11. Fourth, Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of God's people. We who fall asleep in Jesus, when we, you know, those who die as Christians, will wake up on the other side of that threshold that separates this life from the next. Christians will never die again. Christians will enjoy life forever, enjoying and serving the king who himself was raised from the dead. As we've seen so far in this chapter, the doctrine of the resurrection is part of the very foundation of the truth. Without the resurrection, God's agenda for eternity stops here. It's vitally important. The resurrection is the thing. But... There are those who would have us live for this life only to go after the best this life can offer. That true life stops when our heart stops beating. Yes, I'm talking about what seems to be Joel Osteen's signature book called Your Best Life Now. And yes, I took the plunge. I actually read some of it. But in full disclosure, I will say that when I began to read it, it began to feed my flesh. I began to desire some of what he was selling. See, who doesn't want the very finest that this life can offer? Abundance of riches, influence in others' lives, prestige, and so much more. They're all promised in this book, your best life now. But hmm, there are strings attached. The meme of the book goes something like this. If you want to receive what you want from God, you first have to conceive it in your heart and your mind. It's almost like a backwards rendition of Psalm 37.4 where it says something like this. Delight yourself in what you can conceive in your heart and the Lord will give you those desires. Or in Osteen's words, conceive it in your mind, then expect to receive it from God. That's what he says. Now, we're going to talk about Mr. Osteen a little bit later. But let me remind us of why Paul wrote what amounts to about 1,200 words, English words, talking about the doctrine of the resurrection. See, there were those who were part of the church in Corinth, considered themselves to be members, as it were, of the church in Corinth, who did not believe, who denied in the truth that resurrection was was what God wanted, was what God had declared to be. But like with so much of God's truth, resurrection of the body is at cross purposes 
with what the world believes. One church historian writes what the typical person believed about the idea of the resurrection, bodily resurrection, was in the first century. He says, resurrection in the flesh appeared a startling, distasteful idea at odds with what everything that passed for wisdom among the educated. So, as it was then, so it is now. It's usually the more enlightened, the more highly educated those uh, people leave the so-called religious superstitions behind. You're really hayseed hicks if you really believe all that religious stuff, you know, especially this ridiculous idea about the bodily resurrection. That's the idea that so many people even have today. The higher, more educated you get, the more you tend to be this way. Not everybody, of course. So in our passage for today, 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 58, if you don't have it, open, I'll open it up. We're going to see beyond the grave to the other side. It's going to be amazing. We're going to put to rest forever, at least I'm hoping we will, the contemporary proverb that ties us to this life that you can be so heavenly-minded that you know earthly good. You've heard that before. So many people say it. So many people even seem to live by it. But divine truth tells us that the more heavenly-minded that we are, the more earthly good that we can be. Because God has given us the hope of righteous resurrection. We can do the most good in this life. We can indeed be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, precisely because, as the Lord tells us in John 14, 19, because I live, you will live also. Here's where we're heading in this passage. In verses 35 to 49, we're going to see Paul proving the idea of resurrection just by watching life. Resurrection is just the way things are in God's world. And then in verses 50 to 58, we're going to see how Paul gives the glorious picture of how things will be precisely because of the resurrection of Christ. So let's read together verses 35 to 41 as we see Paul build his case for the Corinthians to notice truth of resurrection in creation, in nature. He begins with the question and then sets up the obvious. If there is to be a bodily resurrection, there must be a body to resurrect. Makes sense, doesn't it? Paul writes this. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Don't you love the way that Paul lays out the logic here? I do. First, he chides the accuser by telling them how foolish that question is. See, in the mind of the Greek, there was a strict division between spiritual and physical. Spirit was spirit, physical was physical, and the the never twain shall meet. 
How could a body be put together once decay set in? That was their, what they were struggling with. And Paul sets out to answer that. And remember, though, what was going on here, if we were going to actually go back to the first century and be where they were reading this in the, in the assembly, well, it had just happened. See, it only took them a few minutes to get from verse 4 to verse 35 to 40. See, we at Grace United have taken three weeks, 21 days, to get from verse 1 to where we are now. And we read, we read several weeks ago, that Christ died and he rose again. God raised him from the dead in, in less than three days after he died, according to 1 Corinthians fifteen four. And so Paul continues to remind the Corinthians that anything that is seen has a physical appearance has a body, whether there's a grain of wheat or land animals or fish or birds or any stars even. God has given a body to every individual thing that we can see. God has done this, and God has given that body as God has deemed that body and, and, and the purpose for that. And it is this truth that God has created all things and that it's God who has given each individual a body as he sees fit is what was missing from the pagan mindset. And it's this, it's, it's this thought that's missing from our day as well. Think of the theory, theory, let me highlight that word here in big letters, the theory of macroevolution that is taught to our students in public schools as fact. It's only a theory, right, guys? To them, matter is eternal. Sprinkle in a little chance, a little time, and shazam! Just like that, we have everything that we see, right? See, God was absent in Greek thinking. God is absent in our thinking. And so really, the important question that we need to ask in our, in our day is simply this. Here's the question. Could God create all there is with a word? Could he do it? Sure he could. And if that's the case, then there should be no more discussion. Now, obviously, we could talk more about that. But the bottom line is this. If God could do it, then that's, that should settle things. It should. But it doesn't so often. But now is not the time or place to discuss in de- detail macroevolution. But let me have us chew on, e- on Hebrews 11.3 for just a second. He says this. By faith, we understand. Notice the tie in here. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. See, the macroevolutionist has his or her system of faith. And again, it's a system of faith that they have. And therefore, they understand the data in one way. We who believe creation happened as God said it did understand the data in another way. The right way. And so Paul, having established that it was God who gave bodies to all things that could be resurrected, now describes what I call the dynamic of resurrection in humans. Let's look at uh, verses 42 to 49. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, as in a dead person is put into the ground, is perishable. What is raised is is imperishable. 
It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spirit that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Notice in these verses how Paul tells the Corinthians that it is much better in the Christian resurrection later on than mere physical life in the here and now. Much better. He contrasts the old, natural, biological life with the new, supernatural, spiritual life. Perishable versus imperishable. Dishonor versus glory. Weakness versus power. Natural versus spiritual. And after these things, Paul goes from generalities now to specifics. I love this. Adam, the first Adam, was created from the dust of the ground and became an animated physical being. We know this. Christ, described as the last Adam, at his resurrection became a life-giving spirit. But now notice how Paul describes him. The last Adam was not invisible, but visible. And doubtless, Paul told the Corinthian Christians about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, just like what Luke recorded in in Luke 24. And so I would like for you to turn with me to Luke 24, verse 36 to 43. Luke 24, 36 to 43. Think about this. Think about what was going on here in the disciples. This was the day of Christ's resurrection. And they were kind of standing around, kind of dismayed, They were upset, they were depressed, whatever. And now, let's read this, starting at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself did what? Stood among them, and he said to them, peace be to you. Can you imagine that if you were a disciple? Oh, my word. But they were startled. Yeah, and frightened, uh-huh, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, too good to be true, guys, and were marveling, he said to them, hey, got anything to eat? It's been kind of a long three days here. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate before them. Huh. Here's Paul's point. Though Christ had a body, it was spiritual. It was a glorified body. This body could be touched. Jesus could eat with it. There were visible wounds in his hands, his feet, and his side, but that did not hamper him. And by the way, I heard that the only man-made thing in heaven was going to be the wounds of Jesus. Think about that. He could appear and disappear at will. 
And when he ascended, the Lord Jesus was able to do that because he still had that spiritual body. He still has it today as he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Now, in verses 46 to 49 in 1 Corinthians, turn back there, Paul now makes it personal. In essence, Paul says, it's all about being of the first or of the last, which makes an eternal difference. Now, whether someone is intimately associated with the first Adam or with the last Adam. See, the first Adam is of the dust only. The highest he can go by way of analogy is the ground. So all who, are, who can only identify as belonging to the first Adam, they, that's all the higher they can go as well. These are mere people of earth. Maybe you've heard that expression before in movies and whatnot. People of earth. Those who have their central orientation and their ultimate ties to this life only are those who are of the dust to Adam, the first Adam. The last Adam, however, is ultimately from heaven. We say ultimately because the second person of the Trinity, what happened to him? He was born, he became like the first Adam with a full human nature. He was the son of God. Christ was crucified, dies, raised from the dead, ascended to the Father's right hand. He was and is, in Paul's words, the last Adam. And all those who are of the last Adam, who are followers of Christ, having repented of their sins and believed the gospel, are now associated with who? With the last Adam. Every Christian, as Paul tells us in verse 49, has borne the image of the first Adam in this life, and will bear the image of the last Adam in the next life. As Christ's body was sown into the ground and raised with a glorious spiritual body, so all who are of Christ, all who fall asleep in Jesus, will be raised with a spiritual body to be like His. Isn't that amazing when you think about it? And now Paul gives the glorious picture of how things will be precisely because of Christ's resurrection. And he does this by unveiling an amazing prophecy, an amazing mystery, and it's found in the Old Testament. Verses 50 to 58 is what we're going to be reading here. Again, to just kind of give you a backstory, a mystery is not something that's never been known before. It's kind of like what we might say it was mentioned before, but now it's fully explained. And that's what Paul's going to be doing here with this mystery. So let's keep that in mind as we read this amazing portion of Scripture, verses 50 to 57. He says, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That's the mystery he's saying here. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting 
of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing passage. Now, I would have loved to have been in Paul's presence when he wrote those words. Wouldn't you have been? Can you just see the joy on his face as he wrote these words? Huh. These words in these verses, though, that Paul just penned, they weren't given like an immediate thing, you know, like from God's mind to Paul's heart. No. What he was doing, he was reading Isaiah. He was reading the Old Testament. These were words already revealed to God's people. It was Isaiah who originally wrote these words. Remember the reason for God's rising up, raising up of these prophets. Because God's people were blowing it, right? Big time they were blowing it. They were living in sin. And God used his prophets to call his people back to himself. He warned them over and over again, you don't come back, I'm going to send some people in, (laughs) and you're going to be sorry. But eventually I will bring you back to myself. And through Isaiah, the Lord lets his people know that salvation is not only for the descendants, physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, there will come a time when the Lord will open the floodgates and salvation will be offered to everybody. Hear these incredible words of victory in Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. This is amazing. On this mountain, Mount Zion, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach from his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is what was written hundreds of years before Paul talked about this. It's a mystery. And it's this mystery concealed in Isaiah that Paul is about to explain. Notice the facts of this victorious mystery, the resurrection of the righteous, beginning with the what. See, there's a vast difference in substance between those who attain the resurrection and those who just simply live here on earth. There's a big difference between the two, night and day. Paul calls this resurrection, the inheriting of the kingdom of God. And the prerequisite for entering into the kingdom of God is that death or rapture must happen first. Either our bodies are sown into the ground and God raises us with spiritual bodies, or we are instantly changed at the rapture when Christ returns. In verse 51, we see the who of the resurrection the ones that Isaiah talked about. In Paul's explanation of Isaiah's words, the we are those of the last Adam associated with Jesus. And those of the last Adam, they won't all sleep, but they will all be changed. In verses 52 and 53, Paul explains the when and the how of the resurrection. In a moment, twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. Now, when would that be? We got all kinds of ideas, don't we? 
probably as many ideas as there are informed Christians who study this kind of stuff, right? Pre-trib, post-trib, all-millennial, you know, you name it, it's there, right? Everybody's got this idea. But there is a description of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So, when will this be? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. Your firm opinion is as good as mine. The Lord knows. But we do know that whenever the Lord descends from heaven, he's going to give a cry of command. Whenever that happens, right? There will be some who will not sleep. They will be changed. They will be immediately translated, and they will be raptured, and they will be changed without dying. Wouldn't that be cool? But it's only going to be a very, very few people that's going to be going and doing that. The rest of us, the rest, I should say, maybe he'll come today, I don't know. The rest will be reunited with their divinely remade glorious bodies, like the Lord's spiritual body. And we will all meet the Lord in the air and be with him forever. But why? Why will God's people be resurrected? He didn't have to. God doesn't have to do this, does he? Why? In a word, victory. Remember how Paul said that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection in verse 20? First fruits was a promise of more to follow. This, my dear brothers and sisters, is the bottom line. When we are all raised or changed to attain glorious bodies, what does that spell? V-I-C-T-O-R-Y. Victory over death. God gives us a victory over death through Christ. All of us who know him. It's a wonderful thing. Fantastic. But what is even more wonderful and more grand and more glorious is the victory that God gets out of this. See, every time a soul comes into the kingdom of Christ is a soul who is guaranteed victory over death. Every victory spells death. Every victory over death spells the defeat of the devil over and over and over again. Isn't it amazing? Abject humiliation to the enemy. This is what God wants. And this is what God is going to get every time a soul is birthed into the kingdom. And this victory is so glorious that if we get a hold of this, it ought to change the way we live for the rest of our days. Notice again the power of Christ's resurrection in his people. What does Paul do in verse 55? Let's look at this. What is he doing? He's asking a question. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is the victory? He's taunting death. He's taunting it. How many people are scared to death of death? What is Paul doing? He's taunting it. Where is your victory? Where is your sting? Where is your victory? Now, how is Paul, a mortal man, able to taunt death on this side of death? Because of Christ, 
he is no longer mortal. See, Christ has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. See, dead people can't taunt anything, can they? They can't do anything. They're dead. But Paul and every Christ follower can taunt death because in Christ all are made alive. And notice in verses 56 and 57 how death works. And death is the enemy that we have victory over. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is is the law, as in the broken law of God. Picture like this. You may have heard or may have seen pictures of the Japanese murder hornet. You ever seen them? These things are are spooky. They, They are amazing. I saw a presentation of some strange man who actually volunteered to get stung by one of these. This, this, this guy's crazy. And this one sting affected him for 36 hours by his own testimony. One sting. Can you imagine being stung over and over? Well, consider sin like the stinger of not a Japanese murder hornet, but a soul murder hornet. One sting carries deadly toxin into the soul of every person who breaks the law of God. The truth is, we've all been stung by the soul-murdering hornet, haven't we? But all who are of Christ can indeed taunt death, even on this side of the grave. That's how sure the Christian is in Christ's victory over death, because Christ's victory guarantees ours. We don't have to ever be afraid of death again. Ever. A boy and his, follow, his father were driving down a country road one afternoon when a bumblebee flew into the car window. The little boy who was allergic to bee stings was petrified. The father quickly reached out, grabbed the bee, squeezed it into his hand, and then he let it go. The boy grew frantic as it buzzed by him. And once again, the father reached out his hand to the boy but this time he pointed to his palm. I'm not sure how he did it with driving, but anyway, he puts it up. There stuck in his skin was the stinger of the bee. Do you see this, he asked. You don't need to be afraid anymore. I've taken the sting for you. The only thing the bee could do now is buzz. Isn't it great? We as God's people do not need to fear death anymore. The only thing the enemy can do to us is buzz. That's it. The sting is gone. Why? Because Christ died and has taken the stinger of the soul murder hornet away. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ. So what can we say about these things? Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers... My sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because our resurrection is coming, be steadfast. Because we can taunt the most potent weapon the devil has, be immovable. Because we're forgiven of our sins, we can prove our gratitude to the Lord by continuing to abound in the Lord's work, whatever it is that God calls you to do. For we know that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. Any of it. So as we finish up, this most amazing, most powerful truth, 1 Corinthians 15. 
Let me return to our friend Joel and his notion of our best life now. I mentioned at the beginning of the message that Osteen's ideas fed my sinful nature. Again, who doesn't want this kind of stuff, right? Especially when the world has so often packages it in dazzling display. But the dazzling display is deadly. Is the world really something to give our lives to? Let's be asking that question. Remember John's words in his first letter? He instructs us in no uncertain terms of how to look at the world and the things in the world. In 1 John 2, 15 to 17, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away. Euphemism for what? Dying, along with his desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what Osteen has done is to teach all those who have bought into his scheme to love the world and the things in the world. He insists that we can have the best this life can offer. And here is this excerpt, or just one excerpt, from his book, Your Best Life Now, Subtitled, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential. Quote, Osteen asked everyone to examine what he or she really believes. Now, as Christians, we need to examine what we believe too, right? But here's his take on it. Our beliefs will either prove to be a barrier or a vehicle as we strive, what? To go higher, to rise above our obstacles, and to live in health, Abundance and victory. And I don't think the victory he's talking about is what we just talked about. One reviewer of the book, Diva G, gives this glowing report as to how this book changed, I'm assuming, her life. Quote, Joe Osteen shows anyone willing to be open-minded the tools to navigate the rough seas of life and yet live your best life. He does not teach pie-in-the-sky intangible things. He teaches us how to feel good about ourselves and others. Is that wrong? Precious souls like Diva G have been deceived into thinking that our conceiving the best that the world can offer is the very best that life can offer. But there's a corrective for this found in the writings of C.S. Lewis. See, mere Christianity, he writes this, aim at heaven and you'll get the earth thrown in. But you aim at earth, you get neither. If I could dialogue with Mr. Osteen, I think I would say something like this. Joel, you claim that we can have the best life now, but your signature statement fails in so many ways. Joel C.S. Lewis wrote in some of his works things that far outweigh your ideas. Words like these, If I find in myself a desire in which no experience in this world can satisfy, because we know nothing in this life can really satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Joel, what you have done in your book is weaken precious souls made for another world, one which is far better than our present state. You have trained people to do 
to have very weak desires of things that really matter. Lewis had people like you in mind, Joel, when he wrote that we are, quote, half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies at a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at a sea. We are far too easily pleased. Let me say one more quote for Joel or about Joe in a, di- in a di- in dialogue, but let me just kind of digress here real quick. What was it that compelled Christians to run to the danger instead of running away of the pandemics in their day in the first couple of centuries without PPE, knowing that they probably would die by ministering to people? What was it that, that caused them to do that? The hope of the resurrection. Even though they knew that the disease would probably kill their bodies, they were convinced that a precious soul was worth the risk if only the lost, afflicted one with the plague might see the love of God and turn to Christ. They were willing to risk it. Why? Because they knew that resurrection awaits. Paul told the church leaders in Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 24, I do not account my life as of any value or as precious to myself. Notice what he said. I don't count my life as of any value. It's not precious to me, he says. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. How could Paul view his life this way? Say it. Hope of the resurrection. The hope of the resurrection was what motivated Paul to do what he did, to literally pour out his life for the sake of the Lord and for others. See, he did the most earthly good in this life precisely because he was so heavenly minded. Joel, your problem and the bitter root of your ideas is that in teaching people to love this world and the things in this world is teaching them to be far too easily pleased in the things that really matter. Things of eternal nature. No, Joel, the best life is not now. The best life is then. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, may we, with reckless abandon, count our Lord as more valuable than our lives. May we know and love the Lord and know that the resurrection is waiting for us after this life is over. Remember the words of Jesus as he contemplated what he was going to go through, the cross and his resurrection. He told the disciples in the upper room, because I live, you will live also. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a tremendous, really, Words don't do it justice. I'll just leave it at that. You have given us truth that goes beyond our wildest imagination. You've given us a glimpse of what true life really is all about. And it's not here, Lord. This here is a 
a testing ground. It's a, a purging ground. It's a ground to help us to get ready for what really matters. I pray, Father, that you'll help each one of us to wrestle with this and come to a settled conclusion that we never again ever have to fear death. Lord, in the midst of, of all the social unrest, in the midst of all this pandemic stuff, we do not have to fear death because, Lord Jesus, you died for us. Lord, you were raised. You are the first fruits of resurrection. And, Lord, we who are in you, we're guaranteed that same resurrection. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. Thank you for this precious truth. And I pray now, Lord, that you'll help us in gratitude give you our lives. Not just toward the end of this, uh, end of this meeting time, but Lord, when we walk out of here, Lord, equip us, help us to live the life that you've called us to live because we love you, because you loved us first. So now I pray, Father, that as we give, that we'll give because we truly are grateful for what you've done for us. And I pray, Lord, as we sing that again, Lord, we will sing praises to you because you alone are worthy of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.